for future economic trends. This is BizTalk. Welcome, everyone, to this edition of Econ Talk here on CGTN in our special coverage of the World Economic Forum's 2023 annual meeting. I'm Michael Wong here in Beijing. Now, the theme of this year's annual meeting is cooperation in a fragmented world. The world is currently at a tipping point. COVID-19, food and energy shortages, supply chain issues, and climate change. The shocks of these crises threw an already fragile global system into even more disarray. Now, to address these challenges, accelerated adoption of digital technologies can drive sustainable economic growth. So how do we better shape the world through digital transformation? On the other hand, with China's COVID-19 policies being constantly adjusted, the country's consumption is expected to rebound strongly in 2023. The world's second largest consumer market offers enormous potential, but fierce competition at the same time. So how can brands thrive in China's fast-changing market? To talk about these issues and more, we're joined by Sir Martin Sorrell. Sir Martin formally founded what turned out to be, of course, the world's largest advertising company, WPP. He embarked on a new journey in 2018 and founded a technology-led next-gen digital ad and marketing services company called S4 Capital. Sir Martin, welcome to the program. I think it is a cool and brisk minus six degrees where you are. Thank you for joining us on the program. Uh, Sir Martin, I want to get your take on the state of the global economy as you see it, because we are predicting the world economy to slow down in this year. We are expecting perhaps a mild recession or maybe a stronger recession. We don't know yet in many of the world's advanced economies. But are there highlights that you see in terms of what we can expect for the global economy in 2023? Well, we, we're certainly going to see slower growth. I mean, this time last year, Michael, we were thinking that 2022 would be, what, three and a half, four percent, maybe even more, four and a, four and a half percent was being talked about as we went into 2022. And look at the result. We probably ended up somewhere around two, three percent uh, with, uh, with inflation, with interest rates, with the war in Ukraine uh, and with the other challenges that we've had around COVID uh, and, the, and the aftermath, uh, or, and as in the case of China, the continuing fight against COVID. So that has reduced expectations for this year. Uh, the, the interest rate actions that the central banks have taken uh, in the West, in most countries, uh, I think really is starting to get inflation under control. It is sort of interesting that people are starting to worry now that uh, we may see inflation creeping up. We may see a pivot from the Fed uh, towards or other central banks towards the middle or second half of the year and that, it, that economies might be stimulated again and inflation might creep up again. Certainly we're starting to hear that drumbeat. My own view is that we will see soft landings in most of the Western economies. But I think the critical issue, Michael, is that the world has changed and has become, as the title of the Davos conference this year talks about, a more fragmented economy. And therefore, I think global companies such as our own, we're a mini global company, a company that is expanding its footprint around the world, has to be much more selective in its geographical deployment. Over the last 40 or 50 years, it didn't matter where you went, wherever you planted your flag, as long as the demographics were good, you succeeded. 
Today is very, very different. Uh, I think North and South America offer a lot of opportunity. I think the Middle East with higher energy prices uh, and a higher inflation, I, I think inflation will not revert to the 2% that central banks talk about. I think the new 2% will be 3% or something around that. We will have to become accustomed to a higher rate of inflation and higher energy prices. So the Middle East will continue to prosper. Africa, I think, will be, remain volatile. Uh, and Asia will be a source of great growth with the one caveat around relationships between US and China. I think if relationships improve, uh, I think the position for China and Asia will be even stronger. But uh, on the assumption that they don't, and that we have a continuing lack of cooperation, uh, Asia will still be very important, but the, balance, the balances in Asia are going to shift. The Chinese economy will always be strong, but other economies such as Vietnam, Indonesia, India, uh, Southeast Asia, Malaysia, Singapore will become increasingly important as long as that political tension and uncertainty remains. So the balance will shift, as I say, I think in the world economy to North and South America, the Middle East uh, and Asia. Uh, and the problems I think will, will focus more and more around Europe where the prospects for France, Germany, Italy, Spain, and indeed the UK uh, are, are not as good as they have been historically, and I think will continue to be challenged. In the UK, we're facing a, a very difficult 2023. Uh, the back end of 22 was difficult with political changes. I think the economic picture for Europe is not good. But as I say, companies such as our own are going to be, have to be increasingly highly selective about what they do. The other area of interesting expansion is digital transformation. Companies are not only looking to uh, expand their volumes and revenues and therefore digital advertising and marketing becoming increasingly important, but also digital transformation to try and reduce cost is also going to be important. So those two features, a selective geographical approach and a, f a focus on revenue growth and activation and performance and cost reduction are the two, I think, features principally of 2023 and indeed beyond in 24 uh, and even beyond that. Yeah. So, Sir Martin, then I want to ask you whether or not you think the changes that we see in the world right now, is that going to be the new normal? It seems like we went from a low for long environment where we had low interest rates relatively low volatility, more predictability, and it seems like quite a sudden reversal uh, in the past few years into one that's uh, a world that's more complex, more volatile, and we're doing that at speed. And we're also at a higher inflation environment. Inflation may have eased, but interest rates most likely are gonna stay elevated for a longer period of time. Are the good old days, you think, gone? I think that is the case, I agree with that. Uh, whether it's deglobalization, fragmentation, however you term it, I think basically uh, the game has shifted uh, and the pieces on the chessboard are very, very in very different positions today than they were even a year or two years ago. And that era of free trade or relatively free trade, reduction in tariffs uh, and global development, which really started in the 1980s, into the 90s and into the new millennium has now been checked as we go into the third decade of this millennium. And I think 
your 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 description is valid. I think it's going, we're going to have to be much more selective, much more digitally focused, uh, and much and much more attuned to volatility. So agility is the key corporate attribute. Uh, I know a lot of CEOs at Davos and uh, and elsewhere talk about their organizations being agile and responsive, uh, and often that might be the case, but often it's not the case. And I think agility, reduction of bureaucracy, responding. I, ironically, in COVID, what we saw was a push down of authority and responsibility to regional management and country management. And that has devolved responsibility, which I think has actually been quite good in terms of stimulating agility inside corporations. Whether that retrenches or not, we will have to see. But agility is going to be really, really important. Technology is changing the game very rapidly uh, and causing companies to look at things very differently. You've only got to look at the volatility. I think the average life of a CEO in the FTSE 100 is about five years now. Mm. Uh, and the average life of a CMO, a chief marketing officer in most multinational corporations, probably about two to three years. So the volatility is huge. And I think you're absolutely right that uh, conditions have changed and companies are going, that will make companies much more short term in their thinking. It's going to make them focus much more on performance and activation, moving down the funnel, as we call it, in the marketing world, to focus on performance uh, and activation, on ROI, uh, on data and analytics, uh, and on me media mix. These are the issues in the marketing world that are going to become much more important uh, in the coming years. Right. So it may seem indeed like a more fragmented world these days, uh, Sir Martin, but I don't think our international community have to sleepwalk into the fate of a more uh, fragmented world with higher tensions and more complexity. What about cooperation then? I mean, cooperation is not as sensationalist as some of the maybe other headline-grabbing uh, news events that we see on social media, etc. But cooperation, I think, is the most practical way forward. And here in China, we always talk about win-win cooperation and how we can strengthen cooperation. We know, of course, the relationship between the world's two largest economies is absolutely crucial for cooperation going forward. But what else can we do to really strengthen cooperation in these uncertain times? Let's not just throw away cooperation. Let's still try and, try and find ways and try and find solutions to boost cooperation. Well, I think you touched on the, the most important issue, which is relationships between the US government and China. No other real solution when the two largest economies in the world, what we're talking about a world that is about $90 trillion, about $95 trillion. Mm. The, the US is about $25 trillion, China about 15 So almost getting on for a third, half of the world economy is in these two countries and they dominate uh, the world's economy. A dialogue between the two major powers in the world is absolutely critical. Withdrawal from COVID, stimulation of the Chinese economy, uh, a focus on the real estate market, youth unemployment, the low growth in the Chinese economy, the need for the urban economy to be stimulated to absorb rural labor. That all plays into a stronger Chinese economy and they might, that might augur well for more cooperation. Let me turn to the Chinese economy now and get your take on 
uh, your outlook for 2023 and especially China's consumer market? Because right now China has the largest middle income group in the entire world at 400 million plus strong. And the goal is to double that to about 800 million people or over 800 million people in 15 years time. So give us your take right. on the Chinese economy this year and your outlook for China's domestic demand, its consumer market down the road. The prog prognosis for 2023 that, that I look at, for example, looking at the Western investment banks like Goldman Sachs there, they're talking about 5% growth in the Chinese economy in 2023. Now, the relaxation of the rules around COVID probably mean that Q1 will be, will be slow growth. So I think we will see a very strong reaction in terms of travel and consumption starting in Q2. I've seen some, uh, some forecasts for Q2 of 13% in terms of GDP growth. And in, if Q1 is flat or flattish uh, and Q2 starts to grow, to get to 5% for the year, you're going to have to see very significant growth in Q2, Q3 and Q4. And I think that will be the case. So mm. I am very bullish about the changes that are starting to take place uh, around travel, uh, not just domestically in China, but externally. Uh, the relaxation of the rules around COVID, uh, the, the stimulation of vaccination, and I hope that that will spread amongst the older age groups where it needs to be. Uh, and so I'm very bullish on the economy in 23 and going into 24. Let me turn to the Chinese economy now, Sir Martin, and talk about the digital economy uh, here in China right. and, and get your outlook on the right. development potential of China's digital economy. Back in 2021, uh, China's digital economy came in at about 40% of the country's economic output at nearly 6.8 trillion US dollars, the second largest in the world. What's your take on the future of digital here in China? Well, it will continue to, to grow at a rate, whether it be AI uh, or continued growth of digital transformation, as I've touched on in the context of the, the world economy. Uh, and, and I think we've seen some interesting moves recently uh, with a freeing up uh, of the restrictions on Chinese tech companies, uh, the, the evolution of the, the golden share, not just in the case of ByteDance, but uh, maybe Alibaba and Tencent. And uh, what, what I think we're witnessing is a now another leg up in the digital economy. So if the Chinese digital ecosystem uh, was 40% of the economy, it's going to be significantly greater over the coming years. Uh, in the West, we're certainly seeing digital advertising, 60%, 65%. It'll be 75% uh, of total advertising by 2025. And I think the same thing will happen uh, in China. And I think uh, it's probably a perverse thing to, to highlight. And I think governments now realize as to how important a strong uh, technological base to the economy is and how no economy can, uh, can afford to hobble the growth of technological development. So uh, a very significant change in the outlook for Chinese tech companies in terms of market valuations. I mean, a number of them have doubled in value in the last three or four months. So I think that augurs well for the growth and development of the digital economy in China on the back of what will I suppose we'll get into in a second. Uh, I'm very bullish 
on the, the growth of the Chinese economy as we go into 23 uh, and beyond. Let me talk about um, what businesses can do, Sir Martin, in terms of succeeding here in the uh, massive China market. Sure. Um, this is a fast evolving market. So when brands look at the different demographics and different segments here in China, what do you think they need to do? Well, I, I think it's uh, China, China for China. And um, I think foreign multinationals uh, have got to learn a few things. Uh, firstly, uh, I think in China, unlike the rest of the world economy, where there is a focus on moving down the funnel, uh, moving uh, to, for activation and performance, in China, brand is going to be critically important. Uh, China tends to, uh, it's the, the, the breadbasket of manufacturing in the world, uh, and therefore there are, it's very easy to reproduce in China products and services extremely quickly with great agility. Uh, and I think the key thing is for, for companies to focus on brands, brands and brands, if I can put it that way. Uh, I think what we're seeing is Chinese companies are investing quite heavily in brand to differentiate against more commodified categories and products and services. And I think foreign multinationals have to learn that. So uh, whilst Chinese competition, I think the Chinese com com consumer has become more nationalistic and more focused on China products, all is not lost if foreign MNCs, multinational corporations, focus on Chinese brands, and then secondly, really develop a fundamental understanding of Chinese culture and deploy that uh, aggressively in, de in developing their brands in China. So I think those two things are critically important to focus on brand building. It goes against some of the things that we're seeing in the West where consumers are trading down uh, and are becoming more price conscious uh, and savings that accumulated over COVID uh, have been depleted. So I think brands, paradoxically, in relation to what's happening in the West, are becoming more and more important in China because it's so easy to reproduce things in a strong manufacturing base. But in addition to that, uh, I think foreign multinationals, as long as they're willing to spend a significant time understanding Chinese culture and the Chinese consumer and the Chinese consumers focus uh, on their Chinese heritage and Chinese approach, as long as they're prepared to do that, I think they can be very successful in the Chinese market. But they need to deploy in very different ways. What brands can do these days to better engage and perhaps retain the consumer? Because we have very short attention spans uh, these days. We have endless choices right at the click of our fingertips. What can brands better do to engage with the modern day consumer? Well, there are new technologies. I mean, Web 3.0, virtualization, uh, the, the metaverse, uh, as we call it. All these things are becoming uh, much more engaging. And you're absolutely right, Michael. I mean, consumers are becoming more brand promiscuous. They're, they're switching far faster. The number of messages they have to deal with in a digital environment uh, it, 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 the number is, is huge and therefore their attention spans, as you mentioned, have shortened. And that's why digital has become so powerful. I mean, for example, we in the, in the West 
I remember Facebook um, came out with the insight that women uh, in Italy, it was, spent 1.7 seconds on a post, uh, and our people in Italy, Italy it was work for L'Oreal, came out uh, with ads that were two-second ads. So the answer to your question is you have to be, you have to uh, exploit the insight by using not TV commercials for 60 seconds that take a long time to produce, so by the time you produce them, the problem has changed, but coming out with uh, instantaneous, agile solutions. At the same time, the technology is developing in such a sophisticated way. I mean, we can produce a global campaign uh, out of our uh, studios anywhere in the world now within, within a week anywhere in the world. So the technology is much more rapid and can be de deployed much more rapidly. But virtualization demands emotional intelligence. It may well be that AI stimulates creativity just like data has. And it, in the world of an increasingly sophisticated digital world, virtual world, we will have to establish even stronger emotional connections with the consumers to make sure that we establish that brand connection. And I think in the Chinese market, that is going to be increasingly important. Brands will be more important. Understanding of local culture and the reasons why Chinese consumers are so focused on China's brands will be equally important. But also, an emotional connection will remain important, whatever the technology is that you use. Yeah, and perhaps establish that emotional connection quite quickly. Wow, 1.7 seconds, two seconds. That's quite fast. I mean, one statistic I saw was that the average consumer had an attention span of eight seconds, but I mean, 1.7 to two seconds, that just knocks that out of the park. <laughs> now, in previous industrial revolutions, we saw the automation of physical, manual labor, and now we're talking about the automation of the cognitive, right. automation of perhaps the mind. So how disruptive do you think artificial intelligence, big data, and machine learning will be for knowledge workers? The answer to your question, Michael, depends on how rapidly artificial intelligence becomes artificial general intelligence. I think the, the, the conventional wisdom is that machines will reduce the tedium or replace blue-collar jobs. Uh, my own view is it's going to have a very significant impact, not just on the menial, the repetitive jobs, but but increasingly uh, on the uh, over time and it will take time because machines will have to get used to it and have to be trained for it but i think in time machines will uh, uh, attack if i can put it that way not just blue collar as it's called but white collar as well so i think there's going to be a very fundamental change just like we've seen in digital communications uh, the digital economy overtake the analog economy, traditional newspapers, television, uh, radio, cinema, etc. I think the same thing will happen uh, in artificial intelligence, or maybe we should describe it as artificial general intelligence, because the focus at the moment is on the tedious and the repetitive, and I think the real focus should be on bigger things, uh, and general intelligence. So it will take time, but they, it will get there. And, and China, of course, will play a very big part of that. Both the US and China 
probably will be leaders in that area of technology as it develops over the coming years. Yeah. And what's your take, Sir Martin, on how we can better bridge the digital divide uh, between tech-rich companies and tech-rich economies and tech-poor uh, companies and economies? Because right now it seems like you know, certain economies and societies have more access to big data, have more access to technology. Uh, how do we really bridge that digital divide? Well, it's a difficult problem. And the, the, the two leaders in technology, the US and China, both have a role in their initiatives, in their use of soft power around the world to ensure that that digital divide, that chasm between developed countries or, or the, the more mature economies uh, and the growing or, or the immature economies, that that gap uh, is, is reduced. So uh, I see uh, the US and to some extent uh, Western Europe, but less so, and I see China with the development of Alipay and AliCloud and, and similar technologies uh, as being in a position to reduce that digital divide uh, and to make it easier for the disadvantaged economies to bridge that gap. But it's a responsibility of the developed nations and particularly the developed technological nations to embrace uh, that challenge. It's, it's the same as we see in a number of other areas in the environment, in social areas and governmental areas. I think otherwise that gap will widen and that will be to the detriment of everybody. Right, so how difficult do you think that challenge may be, Sir Martin, in terms of bridging the digital uh, divide? Because when you have the data, it's easier and then you get into a virtuous cycle when it comes to scaling technologies and commercializing it. But right now, like you said, there might be some geopolitical tensions uh, the data haves and the data have nots, it seems like it's widening. So how big of a problem is this? Because if we don't close that gap, that could have huge development, uh, developmental implications and potentially social stability implications in many uh, lower income economies around the world. I think it's the role and responsibility of both economies, maybe in partnership. My, my own view would be, my own wish would be that they would do it in partnership together or increasingly in partnership but it will be a role and responsibility for both countries and both economies along with other countries in the west such as my own in the uk and germany and france and italy and spain uh, and others to ensure that that digital divide uh, is is bridged so it's part of the the purpose <coughs> of governments uh, i use the term soft power <coughs> it's a way of deploying soft power through technology uh, and that will enable people to accelerate their growth and development. Sir Martin, we're going to leave it there. Really appreciate uh, your insights and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Sir Martin. And that will do it for this edition of Econ Talk here on CGTN and our episode today on the World Economic Forum's annual meeting 2023, Cooperation in a Fragmented World. I'm Michael Wong here in Beijing. Thanks for joining us.